Hi everyone. Just before we get stuck into this episode of A Moment of Change, we wanted to tell you about the wonderful work being done by Afghan Welcome, a coalition of charities and civil society groups working together with the UK Home Office to offer Afghan refugees the support they need to start a new life in the UK. There are many ways you can support Afghan Welcome as they deliver clothing, housing, employment and advice to Afghans in need. Members of the On Purpose London team are proud to be involved with the Crisis Appeal and you can check out afghanwelcome.org to learn more. Welcome to A Moment of Change, brought to you by On Purpose London. On Purpose is a non-profit organisation and a vibrant community of people that believe in putting purpose before profit as a way to create an economy that works for all. 2021 is a pivotal year in the fight against the climate crisis and a key moment of change will be the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. Across the series, we'll be talking with changemakers from different backgrounds about what COP26 means to them and the work they do. We'll be chatting with people from areas including fashion, food and the green economy, discussing the challenges of the next few years and what practical actions we can all take to make a difference. So this week we've been discussing all about green jobs and a just transition. In today's episode, we'll be speaking to Jerry, a fellow of the On Purpose London programme, who made the transition from a high carbon industry into social impact to hear his views on these topics. Let's jump straight in. So we're joined now by Jerry Grattan. Jerry is a fellow of the On Purpose London programme and spent time on placements at Interface and Lightful. He's now based in his hometown of Glasgow and is both Managing Director of Impactara Limited, a company that provides SMEs, social enterprises and charities access to lean, agile and digital transformation, normally only found in the private sector. He is also co-founder and COO of Extincts CIC, a social enterprise with the mission of mobilising the next generation of animal protectors through gaming content. Prior to On Purpose, Jerry worked for nearly 20 years in the oil and gas industry for Shell. So, Jerry, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Patrick and Tatman, for the invite. Happy right. to be here. So, can you tell us what your journey was to where you are now and what prompted you to make that, that move out of the oil and gas industry? Certainly. I would like to claim that it was a carefully thought out, logical route, but it really isn't. Kind of short version is after leaving high school, I, I couldn't really decide what subject to sort of do at university. And I was encouraged uh, to actually get some work and feel my way through it. And somehow, I, I have no idea, I still haven't worked this out, but I found myself working in oil and gas for Shell after a couple of years. And as Patrick mentioned in the intro, that lasted nearly 20 years. Uh, I have to say, I loved the majority of my time there, you know, living and working in different countries, learning about different people, different cultures. It was a challenging sort of sequence of assignments within that oil and gas industry, but it was worth it to me personally to see the world. But in 2017, um, I, I resigned from oil and gas for a number of reasons, which we'll come on to, but I, I did that to do the on purpose year. So I actually quit my career to do the on-purpose year. And really, I was trying to work out how do I make my day-to-day work more meaningful and impactful? Because I'd kind of lost my way in relation to that in the oil and gas world. So sort of post-on-purpose that year, which you know a lot about now, 
I moved back to Scotland for family reasons. And as part of that move, I, I sort of launched a consultancy company based on my experience, uh, the type of work I was doing in, in, in the oil and gas industry. And alongside that, I, I wanted to try out social entrepreneurship. So that was Extincts, the community interest company. Joined the board of a local charity and became a business mentor to sports charities. So a combination, a bit like a portfolio approach to the impact sector. And what about the decisions that made you want to leave that industry? Really, the story of how I left the oil and gas industry, I worked in the oil sands business in northern Alberta for a few years. And for anyone who knows that part of the oil and gas industry, you know, extreme conditions, both in winter and summer. And although the people were amazing, you know, they're just doing what they can to secure family, secure their own lifestyle. I constantly couldn't help thinking that there was such an extreme way to produce oil. Um, so again, it was a mixture of a high of getting to know new people, experiencing a new country, but a low of seems very extreme. After that experience, I decided to move, take an assignment in Brunei, very small sultanate in the island of Borneo. And throughout the years there, I became more and more uneasy about my role in the company and also the company's role in the world. It became very obvious that ultimately all of my efforts and the type of work I did was, was really just to pay dividends to shareholders, really. Whilst you were kind of taught to ignore the impact you were having on the world, it was always put into a positive spin. And so when I was back in the UK after travelling and doing those different assignments, I thought I could try and influence the company within. Um, Shell went through a transition, including a new energies business. But unfortunately, Within about six months of coming back to the UK, I couldn't see an easy route into that. And I was kind of told it would be years before I would be allowed to move out of what I had been brought back for. So I didn't really, I felt at that moment, if I had continued in the industry, I would have ended up as a middle-aged, bitter man. I had no right to be bitter because it was my own choice to stay. So I chose to make a clean break and actually as I, as I mentioned, on purpose was the program that helped me navigate that first year post oil and gas. And Jerry, you mentioned there about the majority of your colleagues, potentially they were in the industry and they were mostly focused on having security for their family and for their lifestyle. So I'm curious, you know, were you a, a renegade within that industry? Did you feel, find that you were, felt like you were having these thoughts by yourself or were ideas of a just transition considered by your colleagues or even in the leadership in the organizations that you worked in? And did that change over time at all? There is absolutely no way that I could claim that I was a renegade. I wasn't. People used to joke that I was probably the the, the last lifer in Shell, as in, as in people could see that I would be there for 40 plus years. One of my mentors used to laugh that if they cut me in half, they would see a Shell pectin, a bit like a stick of rock. So I'm not going to claim that I was a renegade because I really wasn't. I was a company person who played the, the company corporate political game for my advantage, as in the things I wanted to do within the company. 
in terms of assignments in different countries. So I'm, I'm not going to paint myself as, as that sort of renegade because I certainly wasn't. There were others in, in the company who, who were challenging and asking some serious questions around about what we were spending efforts on. But I have to say, I cannot speak for, for what's going on now. I mean, it was four years ago when I, when I sort of left. But I would say that there were people who were challenging, even senior leaders who were challenging Shell at the time to expand the renewables division. And I mentioned the new energies division. That's basically what happened is, is they started this new energies global outfit. So there were renegades, there were people talking and pushing the decision makers on that. I, I remember actually thinking it was a typical rebrand, not greenwashing, but but it was just done for, for public face. But that kind of changed when I saw the executives that they put in place to head up that division. And it was a person who... I knew a person that had been very successful and I got the feeling that that was a bit of a turning point internally at the time. Uh, Ultimately, it was still only a small part of the business. So very few people actually got to partake in that sort of early transition. It was a very low number of uh, the coalition of the willing who actually made it happen. Can I ask a quick question? Was there like a specific moment or a specific fact or figure that you saw that suddenly made you change your mind? Or was it something that built up over time? I think there was definitely a build up over time, but there were some key moments which stand out. As I mentioned, that experience of Northern Alberta oil sands, extreme oil in my mind, was a bit of a standout in Brunei in particular. So Brunei is a very small sultanate and, and basically high GDP percentage comes from oil and gas and and it feeds the country in terms of um, jobs, healthcare, social care, schooling, etc. And when the oil price crashed 2014-15, I saw the impact of that and I saw the decisions that were being made by senior leaders both within the company and within the local government. From their perspective, they were doing the right thing. But it was all about short-term profiteering and getting the funds back into the government coffers so that they could continue to be stable within the country. That was the second one. The the third one was actually, it wasn't oil and gas, the industry in particular, but if anyone in Southeast Asia, an island of Borneo, sees the, the destruction of rainforest firsthand, by oil plantations, palm oil plantations, seeing orangutans in sanctuaries, uh, which you get a chance to when you're when you're there. It's a shame they have to have them uh, in sanctuaries. But realizing that everything that you were doing in terms of products, so we came home from a, a, a visit to a Borneo orangutan sanctuary, and we looked at palm oil prod. Uh, we looked for products in our in our home that had palm oil in it and there was loads you know everything nearly that we had in our own house and i think even though it wasn't an oil and gas example i caught myself sort of pointing fingers at the palm oil industry and yet i was one of the drivers of that because i was buying the products that had it i was doing nothing to to change that and at the same time, I, I suddenly realised that I was pointing fingers at an industry which, to be honest, oil and gas has probably had 
more destruction than, than palm oil. Maybe not in biodiversity terms, but certainly in, in CO2 and climate. So I, I began to realise that I needed to hold the mirror up to myself first. And, and as I said, that I thought by moving back to the UK, I would be able to get a chance in the short term to, to start to influence from within. But I also knew myself. And I knew by putting a mirror on myself that I was not going to make this change if I didn't break that time. Because my past in the company would have kept me going down a certain route, a certain type of skill, a certain type of assignment. And I, I knew myself, I knew I had to break away from that to make the, the change that I wanted to. It's amazing how those powerful personal experiences really can sort of shape then what we do afterwards and sometimes seeing it firsthand really brings it home uh, in a way that possibly reading or listening to doesn't doesn't always yeah seen first i mean i mean anyone who's lived in southeast asia for a period of time knows certain industries burn rainforest for clearing at certain times of the year and it, it chokes the countries through smog through poor air pollution so you, you not only see it firsthand you feel it you breathe it and then when you see the diversity loss and the implications in facts and figures, you can combine the two together, your observations, how you felt, and also the, the statistics. Whereas sometimes the statistics on their own don't give you that feeling. And sometimes seeing it firsthand gives you an insight. But if you don't have the overall statistics, you don't understand the extent of it. So having both is probably... What benefited me personally, mm. even if at the time it didn't feel good. And I suppose linked to that, thinking of personal experience, I, I know you said you, you've been out the industry for four to five years now, but what do you think the current situation is like for people working in industries like oil and gas, which have traditionally been seen part of the problem, particularly for climate change, but you know, also like you said, in, in other industries which are polluting. How do you think maybe your ex-colleagues feel right now? And what do you think can be done to support people who want to make that transition? Yeah, so I have spoken to a handful of colleagues who are still in the industry. So I'm making some sweeping generalizations and speculating a little bit. Sorry, my opinion is, is it's tough so I'm going to defend them a little bit, but it is tough for, for people in the industry for one or two reasons. One, they've either become as uncomfortable as I was working in the industry and they're looking to make a difference or looking for that route out. But they're worried about, you know, personally, what does it mean for them? What does it mean for their family? I, I was kind of lucky that it was just my wife and I. We didn't have any kids or dependents at that point. Therefore it was an easier route out. So I think I think that's maybe, it's tough for that reason. And then there's another kind of reason why it's tough. And, and, and those are for the people that maybe they find themselves trying to protect the industry that they're part of and working for. And they find it tough to, to continuously argue for the benefits of the industry, which they believe at a personal level or what the company has helped them believe. So they're probably finding it tough to continue to reconcile that argument. And I think, you know, the IPCC report is pretty scary. And I think people who read who are in the industry, similar to what I mentioned, those two factors, 
some will become even more uncomfortable in looking for a route out. And that route out is not clear for many in the industry. And there'll be others who will be digging in their heels. There'll be others who will want to defend. And, and, and we've also seen the rise of sort of fake news and subcultures and social platforms who, you know, you could take the IPCC report and have a complete subculture of people against it on social media platforms. So I do believe there'll be that sort of range. There'll be people in the industry who just won't believe what's in the report, full stop. Doesn't matter how much evidence you put down in front of people. Because on a personal level, it's difficult for them not to argue for the benefits because they themselves gain personal benefit. What you mentioned there was in terms of those who potentially have the resources to make that transition, that they can be supported and they can find those ways. But with a just transition, often it's trying to focus on those workers who are most at risk often lower paid workers in precarious situations. So what do you think a just transition needs to look like for your old industry? What would it look like in 10 years from now to be a net zero energy industry but has not left anyone behind? This is a little bit of a difficult one, especially the part of the question about 10 years from now. I mean, a number of countries that have oil and gas as their main GDP, it's not their own citizens that are really the core workers in the industry. So they have a lot of workers from uh, different parts like Bangladesh, India, and Malaysia, etc. So in a way, what I would quite like to see is I would like to see the countries that benefit most from the oil and gas industries in terms of their GDP and in terms of their own sovereign wealth look at supporting the workers and where those workers come from in terms of those countries to build a stable yet lucrative alternative for those people. Won't go into too much detail in relation to some of the stuff I've seen, but but definitely there is a subclass potential of people who will be completely left behind by countries that have high GDP, high oil and gas for the benefits of their own citizens. In terms of what I would like to see in terms of a just transition, I would like to see a blanket ban on all fossil fuel lobbying because it doesn't matter what programs you put in place. If, if, if major oil and gas companies have access to governments government agencies and decision-making, and they're still able to lobby at the levels that they are just now, um, which is a, a le- legally is allowed. I'm not sure how we're going to make a just transition. I, I think a blanket ban on that has to be has to be put in place. Uh, I have no idea how you would implement that. It would need to be some pretty large fines for organisations caught flouting that rule. There would have to be some very negative consequences. And is there anything else you might want to see? I think a, a holistic review of review of licenses granted where they don't already have the facilities, the production development facilities in place and a proactive challenge about how that could be offset by lucrative projects in other countries 
with lower carbon alternatives. Now that, that involves joined up thinking and global citizen approach as opposed to nationalistic or, or, or corporate protectionism. So that's a bit difficult. Um, I would love to see a fund, a global fund for bridging qualifications for oil and gas stuff. And that's to fund renewable energy roles or to transition into other industries. But I, I think a, a global fund, that's what I would love to see. The other thing is, is, is there's, a, there's a little bit part of me that, that again, I'm not, maybe, maybe it is greenwashing, maybe it's not, but even the oil majors that are divesting high carbon parts of their business, the problem is they're not actually dismantling. <laughs> what they're doing is giving the, the, the asset to someone else. And that someone else is typically someone who's going to sweat the assets harder. So what you tend to find is the, the, the assets will be sold off, which makes, let's say, BP selling off um, Alaska, for instance, their Alaska outfit, great, reduces BP's carbon. Everything looks good as part of the reimagined. But the new producer sweats the assets, doesn't have a, a green energy transition plan or a, a net carbon um, plan and actually increases the CO2 output. That's happened, not just for BP, but other pieces. So I would actually like to see oil majors use the staff that they're using to produce to actually dismantle their high carbon parts of the business. And during that period, use the same people who, again, are not always the citizens of the countries they're working in, to then develop the alternatives to that. And, and that may involve tax breaks to fund the other stuff that I've talked about. But we're not really dismantling the industry, we're just pushing assets to other players. And I worry for some of the subclasses of workers who are not citizens in certain countries, because there could be an unscrupulous operator out there who will not hold themselves to global standards of workers' rights, etc. So I'm sorry for that grim picture, but I would, in summary, blanket banning, fossil fuel lobbying, a holistic review of all licenses granted, global fund for bridging qualifications to get especially people from developing countries who are taken out of their country to work in oil and gas, to get them back into their country and, and actually have a, a, a good job in industry there. And oil majors that are actually leading the way and dismantling their high carbon areas, not just selling them off. Don't know if that's lofty aspirations or not. Definitely lofty aspirations, but I think if we learn anything from the IPCC report is that we need some pretty bold moves if we're going to have a, yeah. a remote chance of survival at this point, really, to be honest. So uh, no, it's, it's great, to, great to hear that. So I suppose touching on um, something you mentioned before and then following on what you've just said, maybe now looking at challenges and thinking about it more locally, you know, what challenges, you know, are there? for countries, regions, even towns and cities for achieving those sort of lofty goals. And I suppose taking it really as local as possible and bringing it back to the UK and you know, even Scotland, what are the challenges there? And 
for example, what is your view on the opening of the new oil and gas fields in the country, like the controversial Cambo oil field? I'm not surprised that question's in there. Thank you. Well, let me go other country and then take it down to the sort of town level and then bounce back to the, to the Scotland question. So country level, the, the sort of challenges vary depending on which type of country it is. So for countries that have um, developed rapidly in the last 50 years from oil and gas wealth, it, it can be difficult to even comprehend a world without now. So the, the newer generations of those countries have a number of things that their grandparents couldn't even dream of. Uh, I worked in Brunei. You know, Brunei is a very peaceful country. has a high percentage of GDP. And, and a lot of funding from oil and gas activities go to maintain citizens' social welfare. There are citizen rights programs like schooling, health, jobs, as I mentioned before. So the challenge is, is they can't just halt that suddenly. Like the, there is no upside for a country like Brunei to halt that suddenly. In, in fact, it would basically threaten the power that existing rulers and governments hold. So we have to be aware that, that it's not just about oil and gas and energy. It's, a, it's about power stability and and. You know, when you bring the, the question of power and stability and it, it's multifactored. So that's a difficult one. And, and that holds true for a lot of the Middle East countries, Southeast Asia countries as well. So I have empathy with them. I mean, it's, it's, it's not an easy decision to make. I think for democracies and, and, and more like really open democracies, especially in developed countries, there's, there's a similar challenge of... of maintaining the sort of short-term happiness and the power they hold within a four-year term as, as, as elected officials versus doing what's right for the long term. And I have to say that, that, that one of the countries that I, I'm starting to keep an eye on is Norway because they seem to be making the right steps there. But again, they're afforded to be able to do that because of they've actually done well by keeping their wealth fund from oil and gas and they haven't frittered it away they've actually kept it to fund the stuff that they're doing now in renewables so so from a country point of view it does range vary quite a lot and what are your thoughts on a more local or regional basis i think the regional and town basis you know the biggest challenge is, is it's a genuine threat from heading down a negative spiral in terms of like unemployment, the closure of retail and businesses, knock-on businesses, the indirects, the feeling of isolation, the boredom, idleness as people are out of work. You know, there's there's linkages to depression. And of, of course, if an area goes down a negative spiral, it leaves open a potential for a lot of vices that come in to keep people to fill the void, basically. So it's happened before with different industries that have declined in an area. And for me, government officials must know this, but it costs a lot more to fix these underlying issues in towns and areas that suffer from that than it would be to prevent it from happening in the first place. So, so you mentioned bold. It's, not, it's, it's brave and proactive. That, that is the challenge, is who's going to be the brave and proactive parts of government 
are going to avoid towns and, and regions going through that cycle. Um, Aberdeen has had a taste of it recently, in recent years, because of the downturn. We've all felt it as part of COVID. So that bold and proactiveness is needed now, not after the industry has already had its downward spiral for me. Um, and I've touched upon Scotland a little bit. So, so I had a quick look before the podcast, and it's quite difficult in terms of statistics, but I take the Scottish government one. Oil and gas is 5% of GDP and 100,000 jobs. Now, for me, who was in the industry, that doesn't seem a lot. But I can imagine that the removal of 5% of GDP has a pretty big impact on a country. I think if we got ahead of the game and were bold and proactive, brave and proactive and bold, make bold steps, we could avoid losing that 5%, as in we could supplement it with something else. I mean, people who were involved in oil and gas in the North Sea then went across the world and spent you know, their time growing that elsewhere. So if we get ahead of it in renewables, we could end up as a centre of excellence again on a global playing field. I suppose, you know, the most exciting thing happening in around climate uh, in Scotland or in Glasgow specifically is COP26. And so that's where you're based. And it'd be really interesting to know what is the feeling like in Glasgow at the moment about it? Is there a feeling of how pivotal it might be for the future of the planet and any positives in the local communities from it being held there? Yeah. So one, I'm proud that, that Glasgow's hosting COP26. It's, and, and there is a, a chance that it's going to be a bit more of a normal conference than, than, than what we've had to deal with in the last 18 months. I think it could be pivotal. I, I'm hoping it's pivotal. And there is definitely energy news coming out that it could be, especially on the back of the, the latest IPCC report. Again, it's hard to gauge with everything else going on in the world um, if it will be truly pivotal. I'm really hoping that we see that positive type of leadership making the bold moves for meeting those 2030 targets. I would love to see something like a global aligned effort, the same as what we've I think the only example I've really seen is the ozone layer challenge. And, and, you know, can we do something on that scale on the back of a COP26 based in Glasgow would be fantastic. My, my concern is that, that post-COVID and the financial impacts, a lot of delegates may be in the place where they're having to protect their nationalistic and, and corporate protectionism because of the financial implications, but I'm really hoping there's that global aligned effort similar to the the, the one that was done for the ozone layer challenge. And, and as for local communities, my LinkedIn has a lot of connections with local social enterprise networks. And it's nice to see some of them starting to talk about being involved in COP26. So there, there is definitely a chance um, a good opportunity to have local social enterprises, not just the ones advocating for climate change, but you know the full range of social enterprises being front and centre and supplying services and products where they can. Sometimes with these 
big COP like COP twenty six um, events, social enterprises are put aside because they can't handle the scale. But I'm hoping a coalition of social enterprises are getting involved. And I'm starting to see that on my LinkedIn feed, which is good to see. I, I guess the the sort of other positive is. Um, for anyone that remembers the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, you know, the big talking points around about Glasgow and Scotland showing their hospitality. So, again, it gives a good chance for a positive, positive image for local businesses and a positive image for all the volunteers in the local areas um, to showcase what Scotland can provide. So I'm looking forward to, to that as well. Yeah. Thank you. No, I think it's going to be hugely exciting and you know, hugely exciting for the UK, hugely exciting for Glasgow. Yeah. And fully fingers, toes and everything crossed to, that it is as pivotal as we all hope it's going to be. On the podcast, we do like to think about systems change, but we also like to give people that little bit of agency and think about what individual changes uh, people can make themselves. So if you were speaking to someone who's listening now, who potentially isn't an industry where they they want to see changes or if they're from another industry and they want to see you know quicker change in in the energy sector what um piece of advice would you give them or what kind of action could you propose that they they take on on a personal level you know you have to recognize the oil and gas industry isn't just there for their sake there's a demand. So on a personal level, look at how your actions drive that demand. So have a look at the products you use in your house. Have a look at how you, um, what transportation you use and the reasons why you're using it. Spend some time doing a bit of research on alternatives to that. And, and actually, even if you can't afford to make the switch to those new products, because maybe they're a bit... Um, too expensive at this moment in time. At least keep educating yourself on that. Um, give them a platform. Your social media platform is actually free in terms of that. So if you can't pay for the products, at least talk about them, share them with other people who may be able to get that. So that's on a personal level. I think for people in the industry, I, I can't automatically recommend just resigning and walking away from it because everyone's circumstances are so different do want to influence if you want to stay with the company you are or the industry you are and you want to influence start to talk to people who are in your company who work in those type of areas so most oil and gas companies do have a renewables division or an alternative energies division or something like that Go and spend time with them, talk to them. If you then get the feeling that you want to be part of that, then be very clear on finding out the path towards a role in there that makes a difference. I do know people that left the oil and gas world did something like on purpose or on purpose itself and are now senior leaders in oil and gas companies because they wanted to go back and, and make that transition from within. So if you want to do that, then spend time with people who are already there who can help you get that path. And for those that are really uncomfortable, really look at how your personal circumstance could allow you to retrain to make that transition. Take advantage of as many either government or other funds to be able to do that. Some interesting ones out there. But again, make it make sure you're making the right personal choice for you, because even though everyone needs to 
muck in and, and fight for our survival in relation to climate change, there also has to be a recognition that people walking away from their own personal life in the short term, as in doing something that's harmful to them in the short term, might not be the path forward either. So please take that time to, to make sure you're doing it for you. But I guess I'll, I'll leave it with everyone be bold. Everyone be bold and brave, because I would rather people were bold and brave now than fighting for survival later, or their generations to come are fighting for survival because of us not being bold and brave. So that's why I would encourage. I'm putting a mirror on myself when I say that one, because I need to be bolder and braver. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I think we all need to be bolder and braver, especially in the current climate. Thank you so much for talking to us, Jerry. Super, super interesting. Really great to get those personal experiences and as well as practical solutions and or examples of what the industry can do to change. A great balance between sort of what people need to do individually as well as what a society and a government can do. And those two worlds need to meet to make COP in Glasgow as pivotal as we all want it to be. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the challenging questions and, and listening. So it's been amazing to talk to both Dennis from Friends of the Earth and Jerry, a non-purpose fellow. Really different perspectives on how green jobs for young people across the entire country could have such a positive impact. And a really personal story from Jerry of what the move into the impact sector was like. What I think has struck me most is that whether we like it or not, jobs are a huge part of our lives. They affect our livelihoods, our families, and we spend a huge amount of time doing them. Everyone who does the On Purpose program is making some sort of career change because we want things to be different or better. But we all have the agency to do so, and we're lucky to be in that circumstance. I can't really comprehend what it's like to feel like you're stuck in a polluting industry with little positive future and no way out. And that's why I think a just transition is such an important concept for us all to bear in mind. It takes some personal bravery to make the change, and it's not easy. There are lots of bumps, but people, even those that have been in traditionally environmentally damaging sectors, are making efforts to create a change. And that makes me hopeful. Thanks for listening, everyone, and see you again next time. This podcast series is brought to you by On Purpose London in a run-up to COP26 to help us understand how we can all be better change makers for a new green economy. If you'd like to learn more about On Purpose and the associate programme, please go to onpurpose.org. If you've enjoyed listening today, please like, rate, review, subscribe and share on wherever you find your podcasts.